still not on. <laughs> Can you hear me, though? <laughs> okay, that's what's important. Um, if you would, turn to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. But again, I just want to emphasize thank you for the opportunity, Jeremy. Um, I, I love coming here. I love being home. And I hope I get to meet some of you afterwards. We're going to look at Psalm 37. Now, um, for, for many people who live along the coast of the eastern United States, especially the southeastern United States, this is a time of year that causes a great deal of anxiety. And I'm, I'm not referring to the college football season, although that causes a lot of anxiety, whether you know, your team is going to beat your rival and all that. But I'm referring to the hurricane season, especially with what went on just this past weekend. As many of you know, Hurricane Delta made landfall this last Friday evening. And these types of events make news because they obviously cause a lot of harm and they affect a great deal of people. Uh, just a couple of the headlines last night, I was trying to catch up on where, where we were at with that. And one of the headlines read, Hurricane Delta leaves hundreds of thousands without power, while another stated, weakens Delta brings heavy rain and threat of flooding and tornadoes to the southeast. And as this is hurricane season, it causes concerns. Now, as, as Jeremy mentioned, we do live in North Carolina, and I can kind of understand that anxiety having lived there now for seven years or so. And even though we live about five hours from the coast, that when the storms come, I mean, they, they can come inland and cause a lot of damage. I remember a few years ago, there was a large hurricane. It actually caused a lot of flooding in the eastern part of the state. And we were very worried. We were right on the track for large windstorms, huge amount of rain, and we had to do a lot of preparation. We had to prepare for power outages, prepare for our road is very difficult to get out of. We had to prepare um, food, you know, for maybe a couple of days. Now, fortunately, nothing happened at that time. The storm shifted, and it caused a lot of damage in, in the mountains. But I, I can understand just a tiny bit of the anxiety um, that people feel in the southeastern, especially along the coast, and a little bit of what they, they feel in Louisiana right now. But in a very similar fashion, there is a little more than a tinge of anxiety than what is going on in our world today. Um, Jeremy mentioned this in the pastoral prayer a little bit ago. There's, of course, the coronavirus. I know you don't want to hear about that anymore, but that causes a great deal of anxiety. There is urban unrest and violence. There's great political polarization and, and huge cultural shifts with how to handle all of these things. And, and these cause a great deal of anxiety. But it's not just 2020 that all this has come to the surface. Um, Christian pastors and leaders for decades have long lamented over the culture, cultural and moral decay, decay going on in Europe, and going on in the Western civilization and in America. And wickedness and wicked men appear to abound while the righteous are derided and they're just held in complete contempt. We watch and we see a culture completely disregard morality and truth and turn on those and turn on those who proclaim tr morals and truth. And like any hurricane, tornado, or violent storm, we worry or 
about what is the culmination of this storm. It is as if one book that I've seen describes this. There's a gathering storm, and on the, on the picture of the book, there's a church, and in the background are dark clouds that are gathering and coming, and there's a gathering storm that is coming. And what are we to think about these things? How are we to act? What is the proper Christian response to the machinations of the wicked? Well, our passage is going to speak directly to these concerns. And it comes from the hand of King David. But this is when he is an older man. You'll see that later in the passage. He is reflecting on his long life. And he had experienced much trouble in his days. Let's just think about when he was a young man. We all know the story of David and Goliath. But before he defeated Goliath, there was all the anxiety of these evil Philistines and the evil Goliath just harming their country, killing their people, and causing oppression. Later, after he defeated Goliath, he was even chased and oppressed by his own father-in-law and king. He tried to kill him and assassinate him. And further on, even when David became king, he was, he was, he was thrown out of his, the capital of Jerusalem by his own son Absalom and had to flee. So he knew a thing or two about dealing with wickedness and wicked men. And he knew how to deal with these period. And in this psalm, he implores us to listen to his wisdom. He says, I have been old and now, he said, I have been young and now I'm old. Please, please listen to this. This is a, a psalm that is full of wisdom. But before we look into it, there, there's actually one other thing that is really fascinating about this psalm that I, I think will help us understand the main idea that, that, that David is trying to get across. And for this, we need to jump all the way ahead to the life and ministry of the son of David, Jesus. Now, Jesus, in the, in the gospel of Matthew, when you look at his teachings, he emphasized over and over the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, in chapter 4 of that gospel, we are told that Jesus went through all of Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then in chapter 5, we reach the famous Sermon on the Mount, where he starts to handle some of these things. And Jesus emphasizes how the citizens of that kingdom are to live in this present evil age as we wait for the coming and final culmination of that kingdom. Very early in that sermon, you have the Beatitudes, blessed are they, blessed are they, and so forth. But when we come to chapter 5, verse 5 of that sermon, chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it's in this verse that we find how he instructs his disciples how they are to respond to the schemes of the wicked. Now, you, you're probably a little confused because what, how does this connect to Psalm 37? How does being meek how does that connect with how we're supposed to deal with wickedness and the machinations of the evil? Well, what that has to do with this is you have to understand something about how, how teachers like Jesus preached and taught in his days. The, the, from an early age, Jewish children were just taught the scriptures. It was hammered into their head to where not only did they just know a verse where you could just reference a verse, they knew the entire context. And you think about the Psalms. This was their hymn book. I mean, we, 
we, we know hymns probably better than we do the scriptures because we sing it, you know, things remembered in song or remembered long. But for the Jewish people especially, they knew their scriptures inside and out where all you would have to do is quote one little line of it and they would remember the context. So I'm going to read just here real quick what one Bible scholar, how he describes this. Because this is what, what the rabbis called stringing pearls. So to increase the impact of a statement, rabbis would quote a part of scripture and then let their audience fill in the rest. So in other words, the passages from which Jesus quoted provide background for understanding his meaning more fully. If we miss his reference, we may miss his point. And when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, he is quoting from our psalm today, specifically in verse 11. So when his disciples heard this statement, and they're trying to process this, their minds would immediately jump to this psalm, and they would fill in the blanks. So, let's just leave the Sermon on the Mount for a little bit, except for that idea, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If, if I was to entitle the message anything, it would be that. That would be the theme. And let's go back to Psalm 37, and that, let's try to, try to trace back what were the disciples thinking. What were they thinking about what David was saying? Now, I'm not going to read the entire psalm, but the message is going to be on the whole psalm, but I want to read just verses 7 through 11. So, we'll look in verse 7 of Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And here is verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So we're going to look at Psalm 37. We're going to expand on what Jesus meant by being meek and what that has to do about inheriting the earth and what that has to do with how we deal with the schemes of the wicked one. With, the wicked, with wicked people and, and, and around us. So to get to the core of this psalm, instead of just walking through it, I want to notice three important themes from this psalm. The first one is the character of the wicked. And we'll just look at a few verses. I'm going to jump around a lot. So, I mean, if you want to look, you can. If I'm going too quickly, wave or whatever. But I'm going to try to walk through this. But the first thing that we notice about the character of the wicked is that they are unscrupulous. Verse 21 describes the wicked that he borrows and does not pay back. Then in verses 14 through 15, they are described as people who commit acts of violence against the poor and the needy. David uses the image of a warrior bending his bow to take out the weak, and that, that is despicable. He doesn't care for any man, and the picture here is of someone who seeks out only what is good for himself. But what is clear here about this in this psalm is that the wicked are those who specifically, who specifically seek to destroy the righteous. Look at verse 12. He plots against the righteous. And then again in verse 32, they are those who target the righteous. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. He plots against the righteous. And, and why is this? Why would the wicked 
specifically target the righteous one. Well, possibly the wicked concentrates his arrows against the righteous because they stand in his way and they expose him for what he is. They lay open the truth about his lies and his deception and what he's doing wrong. And, and they can't stand this. They stand, the, the, the righteous, the meek, stand in complete opposition of what the wicked want to accomplish their ends. Now, this is a, there's another factor here that is very disturbing about the wicked one, and that is that they hold great power and influence. I mean, it, this happens early on in the psalm. Look in verse 7. Wait patiently for the Lord. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. And then if you look at the very end of the psalm again, um, in verse 35, it, it describes the wicked man as a prospering tree. I have seen the wicked, ruthless man spreading himself. Remember, this is David writing. He has seen the wicked man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. And, and this image to me is the most powerful when you think about the great big trees. A, a couple weeks ago, I took my boys to Congaree National Park in uh, South Carolina. And it is known for being an area that is so swampy, it has been so flooded by, uh, by um, water from the river that they could, ne they could never go in and log it. And so it has some of the largest old-growth trees in the entire continental United States. And in fact, you can go up and they'll have signs on national champion trees. And they had there the national champion loblolly pine. It is this humongous tree, and you can't even just see the top. And the canopy of the forest is just beyond what you can see. And, and, and the image here is of these great big trees, and the wicked are like them. He is well-established, and this is powerful because like a tree... The wicked are those who are, 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 are very well established. They have gained either generational wealth or generational power, and they use it to promote their agenda for horrible ends. And, and we can all just think about, we can all think of examples of this who've used their wealth and their influence to pay bribes to avert justice. I mean, illustrations of this abound from huge corporations who use their wealth to take over small businesses or we think of politicians who gain more and more power despite utter corruption. Or even we think about the, the, the media and the entertainment industry in general who push, you use their platforms to push things that we Christians would find evil. So that is the thing that's the most disturbing to them. But what is most striking about the wicked in this psalm is their end. The wicked will be utterly destroyed. And David uses numerous images to emphasize this. In verse 2, he says that they were, will wither like grass. And this was a powerful image to many of those who lived in the ancient Near East, where it was often dry, where the grass would spring up, and then it would just, as quickly as it would spring up, it would dry up and go away. I mean, I guess that happens here a lot. I've been in North Carolina a lot too long to remember that you know, the grass doesn't stay green all the time of the year. But this was a very powerful image. And then he also uses an illustration in verse 17 that the, the wicked, their arms will be broken. In verse 20, they will perish and vanish like smoke. In verse 36, they will be no more. Verse 38, they will be utterly destroyed. But a refrain that is emphasized over and over again, and this is going to be important when we get into to, to what it means about being meek, 
is that a, a repeated refrain is that they will be cut off. You see that in verse 9. You see that in verse 28, in verse 34, and in verse 38. And this is in direct correlation with the meek man because the wicked will be cut off from the inheritance that the meek receive. So that leads us to the next theme of the passage. We've, we've looked at the wicked, the character of the wicked. Now, what is the character of the meek? What are the marks? What are the characteristics of a meek man? And, and this is the heart of what the message is today. This is the heart of what Jesus meant by being meek and what it has to do with how to respond to the schemes of the wicked. So what are the marks of a meek person? Well, this term is closely aligned with the idea of, of humility. In other words, this is a person who doesn't have an overinflated ego. I recently read a book, and I would highly recommend it. It's actually more of like a pamphlet called, um, and it's by Tim Keller that just left me. I'll just mention it to you. The, the Art of Self-Forgetfulness. And he has an illustration in there about how that you don't think of any part of your body until it's hurting. You don't think about, oh, wow, my elbow's great. It's working great today. Unless it was recently hurt or you recently broke your arm, you only think about it until, ow, my elbow, it, it hurts. But we think about our ego all the time. And that's because there's something wrong with it. We think too highly of ourselves. And in that book, he talks about the art of self-forgetfulness. And so the mark of a meek person, this is a person who is self-forgetful. This is a person whose ego isn't blown out of proportion. It describes one who isn't seeking to gain preeminent power over one another. But what is interesting when we look back at Psalm 37 is that we notice that the meek are those who have already experienced affliction. In fact, this term, the meek, is, is, is related to the term affliction. We often think of the word meek when we, when in our modern culture, or in my mind, I just often think of someone who's a pushover, someone who could easy, easily be manipulated, someone who could easily even be intimidated, but that is most assuredly not the case because of this whole idea of someone having been afflicted. Because we have seen below, someone is not going to be afflicted, or about what, we, what I talked about earlier is we... Someone cannot be afflicted by the wicked unless they are standing up to them, unless they are standing up for what is right. This is in no means someone who is a pushover. So in one biblical sense, biblical meekness can better be understood as a proper response of someone who has suffered for doing the right thing. And as we see in Psalm 37, there, there actually comes a great strength from those who are afflicted, who suffer the weakness of being afflicted. I mean, it reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 9. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul writes this because he had that very familiar way with the Old Testament. He knew his scriptures. He knew what Moses, who said that he was the meekest man that, that dwelt upon the earth. He knew about this passage that David dealt with because he knew that God's power worked through his weakness, that worked through the affliction. 
And that, that is what's at the root of this word. The second, the meek reject the power and persuasion of the wicked. And you see that in verse 27. They turn away from evil and do good. And we noticed how, how, how the evil are like those great big trees. And they have great power. And they have a ton of influence. And it's easy to just let what they say or let what they think just, to, we just immediately take it on and assume it. It becomes our assumption. But the righteous are wise enough to face this, to face the hard truth and call out what it is. This is certainly not someone who is a pushover. This is certainly not someone who is easily intimidated. That is not what is meant by meek. But the meek are those who respond to adversity with control. They respond to adversity with control. When I first was thinking about this psalm, I was thinking about this gathering storm and about all the things that we are faced with. And I would look at this psalm, and it just opens up in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. And he repeats this refrain in verses 1 and verse 7 and in the middle of verse 8. Fret not. And, and that word fret can literally be taken, don't become hot. And we're all familiar with what is meant when someone is described as a hothead, someone who is out of control, either easily angered or eas easily agitated. But for the righteous to respond with meekness, they must not get worked up with anger or worry over the wicked one's way. Again, he emphasizes this in the middle of verse 8. He says, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. This instruction comes with a warning. If we respond as a hothead, even over the injustice of the wicked, our, or are angry or even worried, our response will be that it will lead only to evil. And this, also, this emphasizes a point that we examined earlier. This isn't a meek person who's a pushover. This isn't someone who's easily intimidated. But this is, as one pastor put it, this is meekness, is power under control. It describes someone who doesn't use power, he does have to his own benefit. But instead, as it says in Romans 12 and verse 10, in honor preferring one another. And similar with that, when we read about the meek found in this passage, is the meek respond to adversity with upheaval with patience. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And later in verse 7, as we read, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not. What is interesting is that the Apostle Paul reiterates these instructions for his believers in many of his letters. When he's, when he's trying to encourage these small Christian communities in the Roman world that are struggling, that were facing adversity from all sides. Paul writes in Galatians 5, and 23, this is a famous passage, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he carries this idea further when he writes to the Romans in chapter 5. In verse 3, we, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, 
And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this leads us to another thing that I think is important for us to really put this together about what it means to be meek. And that is the meek find their satisfaction in the promises and gifts of God. The meek find their satisfaction in their gifts and promises in in God. Look at verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. The meek, the righteous, are the ones who take pleasure in the words and in the works of God. And this idea of commit, when we think of that idea of commit, we think of it as this is something I'm going to do, and I'm going to just force my way through this. But the idea of commit here actually has the idea of rolling, as if you are rolling a huge stone into its proper place. And and Peter must have been thinking about this when he wrote in his epistle, cast all your care upon him, roll all your care upon him because he cares for you. And this is rolling all of the burdens and fears and anxieties of, of the future upon God because he will act. And this is one who makes a self-conscious effort to order his way according to wisdom. This is a psalm of wisdom. In verses 30 and 31, this is emphasized. When David writes, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. They are wise because God's words and ways are ingrained in their heart, not only in one's head, but in one's heart. And at the very end of this psalm, in verse 40, David culminates by saying that the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And that's how he closes the psalm with this idea of God being our refuge. And this is tied closely to finding our identity with Christ. Our world and even within churches and within ourselves, we struggle with what our identity is. We find our identity either in relationships or identity in our work or in our pleasures. Yet what God wants us to do, what we have, what we have to do, is find our identity in Christ. Who am I? I am a Christian, first and foremost. That is what I identify as. I identify as a person of the Word. That is how you battle the wicked. And there are many more specifics in this psalm that we could cover about what it means to be meek. But these are the things that just come to the surface from this passage. But there's a trait that all of these have in common. And that is an explicit trust in the de- and dependence upon God's sovereignty, an explicit trust in the sovereignty of God. This is a trust rooted and founded, and if I could use that imagery again, of the tree. Let's think about the tree mentioned in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who's like a tree that grows by the rivers of water. A meek man is rooted in the word of God. And this is the quintessential characteristic of a meek person. They find their refuge, their identification in God. And that leads to the next theme and the most important theme that we find in this passage. We've seen the character of the wicked. We've seen the character of the meek. 
But third, we see the character of God. This is emphasized over and over again. This is not just a psalm that tells you this is what you do. This is a psalm that wants us to say, you can only do these things if you are thinking about God, if you are meditating about God, if His Word and His ways are changing you. Look at verse 13. The first thing we see about the character of God is that God is just and He will judge the wicked. Verse 13 says, The Lord laughs at the wicked, for He sees that His day is coming. And earlier, I want to go back and I want to repeat that, that refrain that we looked off, that what happens to the wicked, that they will be cut off. Again, mentioned in verse 9, 28, 34, and 38. And this is in direct correlation with what happens to the meek. God will cut the wicked off from the inheritance that the, wicked, that the, that the meek will receive. It can be so easy to despair when we look at the wicked and when they see what they get away with when they lie and when they... And they and they do things that are just horrible, and yet they live in prosperity. But we have to, it is incredibly important for us to reflect upon the character of God and to reflect upon His promises and take the long view of a situation. We cannot just look over the short little periods of, of struggles that we're dealing with or, or even our little short lifespans. We have to take the long view of a situation We have to remember that what we are battling is not just people who are evil or institutions that are evil. We are fighting a cosmic struggle. Remember Ephesians 6, 12 calls us to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against principalities, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is something much larger than us. There's something much larger than our time period going on. And even though we may live a life and we may see the wicked die and, 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 and prosper and get their way, they will fail. I, and and there's, there's a really good illustration of this, and that is to read history. And that is to understand the long view of history. Because we live in a world that God created that was good. We created a world that is a sowing and reaping world. That's why he's given us his instructions. That if you want to live a life of peace and happiness, live according to my instructions. That was what he tried to teach the Israelites. And if you look throughout history, you find wicked institutions with great power, and they rise up, and they may last a couple generations, oftentimes less than that. And they are eventually destroyed because there is a rot at the center of them that they self-implode. I mean, think about the early Christians. When, when they were in the Roman world, their, their entire concept of a single God and, in, 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 in a God that had power, that, that demanded ethical considerations, was foreign to them. And they were persecuted. But now how do we think about the ancient Romans? We think of their, their, their war lust. We think about their, the, just the horrible things that they've done, their slavery, the, all the evil things that they did, and yet that, their gods, their deities that they respected have passed from the scene. And we could go throughout history, and yet we find the constant of the word of God. And it produces hope. It produces, and it's not that the wicked will rise up, and it's not that things will get worse and worse, 
But ideas have consequences. And good ideas lead to good outcomes. And bad ideas lead to bad outcomes. And that's because God is faithful to his people. Look at verse 23 through 26. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, but for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. He will uphold his people. And what's, what is hopeful about this passage is he will uphold us even when we fall. Even if we give in to the ideas of the evil. It says in Proverbs 24, 16, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. And I couldn't help but think again of the teaching of Jesus, this time in the Gospel of John, when he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. He preserves his saints forever. He is faithful for those of us who have rolled the burden of our sin upon Christ, who have repented and turned of our sins, he will not ever let us go. He is faithful. It's not that we remain faithful, although we should, but it's that God gives us the ability to remain faithful because he is faithful to his people. And that goes, and look again, when we talked about the culmination of verse 40, and that is based upon God being our deliverer. Verse 40, the Lord helps them and delivers them. That is the righteous, that is the meek. And this is a call, again, to remember the, the past, specifically for the Israelites to remember their history. This was for, it, for the Israelites who had been reading this, they would have immediately thought of the Exodus story. They would have thought of Pharaoh and how that they had no hope. They had no hope in Egypt. They... Nothing, there was no outlook. Everything they tried, they were oppressed harder and harder. And yet God brought Moses and worked the miracles and delivered them. They would have thought about the book of Judges. If you read through the book of Judges, there is time and time again where God delivers his people. And this is what they would have thought of. And David would have thought of, been, of him delivering, of God delivering David from the hand of Goliath. I mean, that is what David said in, in that passage. He said, the Lord, he will deliver me into your hand. And, and Goliath laughed at him and said, who are you, a boy, to come to me with a stick and a rock? How are you going to defeat me? And David says, the Lord will. The Lord will. In each instance, this is a reminder that God will keep his promises and will deliver his people. And this is a call to the Christian. Jesus has come, the son of David, delivering those oppressed and afflicted by the evil of our day and by the evil in our own heart. But it is important to point out that we cannot do this on our own. We have to commit. We have to delight ourselves in the works and the ways of God. God will also, we see in this passage, exalt the meek. He will exalt his saints. And that's when I want to go to that, that part where Jesus says they will inherit the earth. Because that is a common refrain that you're going to find in this passage mentioned in verses 9 in verse 11, in verse 22, in verse 29, in verse 34, is this refrain, they will inherit the land. 
And then it's expanded and rephrased in other places like verses 3 and verse 27 where he says, they will dwell forever. But notice what Jesus does in each of these passages. It says that they, that they will inherit the land. And what the Israelites would have thought of, they would have thought of the land of Canaan because that's where the promises that God gave them to Abraham, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would have thought about that and the promises that God would let them prosper. But what does Jesus do in Matthew 5? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, not just the land. That's important. Jesus is trying to make a point What Jesus is referring to here is the great and wonderful promise of the renewal of all creation. This is keeping the long view in mind. This is remembering the cosmic struggle. This is remembering that there will be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth wherein righteousness dwelled and the wicked will be cut off. That is a call to remember that. Remember the promises. They would have thought about the promises in Isaiah in, verse six, in, in chapter 65 and verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered um, or, not, or come to mind. In 2 Peter 3, 13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we know of these promises. We remember these promises. But let's, let's try to shake our, our lethargy in this. And it's not just, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven one day. Or, yeah, there's going to be a new earth. We need to just rejoice in this. Because, again, remember, God created a, a beautiful creation. I, and I, I think about this when I think about viewing a beautiful landscape, whether it's a beautiful sunset or whether it's going to the, the, the beach and, and just soaking in the, the water just coming in. Or a beautiful mountain landscape where you, where you can hike among towering peaks with smells of pine and sage and, the, and, the, and, the, and then the mountain streams. And all of this just makes you just want to praise God for his creation. Yet we, just, we feel like we cannot understand the greatness of it all. Or then we look at in, the, in the creature world, the intricacies of the bee and of the ant. And all of these things that God created. And, and you even read about people who are unbelievers who talk about there's something spiritual in these things. And we have to keep look at these things and remember that these are things that proclaim God's goodness and that in that renewed creation, we can study these things that magnify His goodness and His, His greatness, His great creativity. In the new creation, we will experience all of this to the fullness. In the new creation, we will be returned to the role in Sunday school Jeremy was talking about the fall where, where Adam was our representative. But in the new creation, we will be returned to the role that Adam held and care for all, and we will praise God properly. For the believer, the future is incredibly bright. And after a lifetime of affliction, after a lifetime of seeing where the prosper rise up, mess up stuff, fall, and then another wicked man rises up, messes stuff up, and falls. After a lifetime of that, we will see them cut off, and we will see righteousness and justice dwell in a new, king, in a new kingdom. So in essence, when we think about the character of God, the meek can only be meek, can only be humble, when we reflect upon the character of God, when we reflect upon His works and His ways. When we view ourselves in the light of His word, 
which results in an absolute trust and confidence in God's sovereign plan because he does not abandon his children. Now, I've skipped around a lot in this passage because I really wanted to try to focus on these, these first three themes. But kind of in, in closing here, um, I'm going to give you a few things that I think we need to remember, but I also want to give you some homework. I know you're not supposed to do that, but what I would encourage you to do is to open up your Bible or even print off this psalm on a piece of paper and take a couple highlighters, three highlighters, and read it once through and highlight things that says what God will do, His promises. Then read it again and highlight what the wicked do. And then highlight it one more, we'll read it one more time and highlight what the righteous man does. And you're going to see some of these things about delighting, about committing your way. So that's your homework. Read through this, and it, it, is, it is an assuring psalm. It is a psalm that just causes us to, to praise God. It is a psalm that makes us reflect that we will fret not, we should not fret not, not respond as a hothead. So let's remember a few things. We do live in a, an interesting time at this point in history. There's a storm certainly seems to be gathering, but God is faithful. So here are a few things we need to remember and meditate over. Remember that the wicked, no matter how powerful, will one day be destroyed. Sooner or later, they will fail and they will fall. New ones will rise back up, but don't be dismayed because God is victorious. Remember, blessed are the meek. Happy is the one who faces affliction with grace and control. One who keeps his ego in check and is self-forgetful and one who commits his way to the Lord. And then remember the promises of God. Believers will inherit the earth. Keep the long view in mind. His plan is perfect. His way will emerge victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your goodness. But we, we ask for your forgiveness for how often we, we fail, how often we fall, and become worried and fret, or how often we give in to the ways of wickedness. Pray that you keep us upon your way and your word and help us to remember these things and to delight in you. In your name we do pray, amen.